0: Your work is always gonna be problematic in some sense or another. And if you start making work that is bulletproof and not problematic, then um, you probably have the wrong idea. I'm really interested in honoring our bodies. As soon as I just like put my face in front of a camera and stare at it and don't do anything, people are gonna be like, oh, girl art. (laughs) I think a lot of people don't understand audio. Sound is just so risky. I don't know. Like it's good to ask yourself, like, are you doing enough? Like, are you really, is your work really about that or is your work really about form? It's totally cool if your work's about form. Just like advertise it clearly. If it was just ASMR, I wouldn't have a problem with it. And I'm almost ready to just say, like, you know, fuck it, it's not art. I'm not sure that I'm ready to like throw away humanity though (laughs) myself, as much as we deserve to be thrown away. Capitalism will always use what is seductive. It's weird to think about the idea that I could just stop doing this at any point. A lot of people that are also kind of saying, fuck you, I'm still here.
1: (laughs) This is Precariate Content. Thanks for listening to this. In episode 13, we amplify our sound art infatuation in conversation with Aaron G., Talking with Aaron underscores a preoccupation of this podcast about the anxious relationship between form and subject. But otherwise, what the fuck can sound experimentation have to do with class politics? Aaron says that formal experimentation divorced from political context simply does not feel exigent to her at this point in her career. At the same time, she feels compelled to acknowledge that fundamental research in human emotional and phenomenological experience has the potential to dislodge destructively cliché culture, social spaces, and practices that articulate and produce us as subjects. Through technological intervention, Aaron's work grapples with the political by pointing to the problems inherent to the forms she engages. Aaron is a composer and media artist informed by sound as a phenomenological experience. Using biosensors as a sort of interface, her work explores emotional sincerity both as a composer and in video game design. Her work is cerebral and politically engaged, but is nonetheless insistently physical and grounded in the body. There is a good deal of rain in this recording. Two, Aaron has the rich vocal timbre of an ASM artist, so these textures combine to make this a pleasant interview to listen to, especially in the cavernous converted factory of Montreal's Eastern Block gallery space where we took this recording. When I asked Erin to offer me an experiment upon which to base this episode's bridging music, she shared with me a dream she had of spitting, screaming, singing crystals, so you'll hear my attempt to sound design that dream. I had assistance from Og and their crystal collection as source material for the sound design. You'll also hear an excerpt from Erin's third-person shooter VR experience that centers on emotional sincerity, rumbas, and B-list vocaloids. Toward the end of the interview, Erin describes a new work showing until the end of the month at Eastern Block and available at laughingweb.space. To experience or contribute to her piece, inspired by Cheryl LaRondelle, visit the website linked in the show notes. Um, okay, so what, how i like to start is if you could give your name and oh. then talk about your disciplines a little bit.
0: Sure. My name is Erin G. I I am a um, media artist. I've decided to, and this is something that you might find interesting, I'm deciding to very tearfully kind of... Um, I used to really want to self-identify as a sound artist, and um, I think that maybe it, like, I, I was very romantically attached to it because all of my earliest texts, all of my earliest influences, all of the things I love about music, are all in sound. If I go to, uh, you know, if I go to a museum, like I, I'm always thinking in terms of sound. I want to, like, I wonder about like how sound art. Canon is going, you know, I want to go to the sound art shows. And um, finally, I was really looking at my practice and I was like, you know, I don't look like a sound artist. (laughs) I don't sound like a sound artist. I make media. I'm a media artist informed by sound. Um, I make compositions and I uh, make new technologies that are informed by sonic um, culture. I'm really interested in what a lot of the sound artists had to say about uh, about sound as a kind of phenomenological experience, and I am interested in like how Rosalind Krauss, for example, in the 1970s, said that you know video and new media um, are informed by narcissism and visuality, and I kind of ask, you know, what's an echoist technology, and how is there this way that this subversive echoing noisy distortion kind of, of ourselves can return through our technologies and kind of situate us in a space. Um, so I guess that that's a very abstract definition of what I do, but if you want something more concrete, I make robots, I make VR things, I'm interested in holographic pop stars. Um, I, uh, I am very really interested in emotional sincerity, as measured through biosensors. Um, And um, I'm all about electronic voices in human bodies and human voices in electronic bodies. (laughs) That was a very long introduction. I think I'm the kind of person who actually really um, enjoys learning. And maybe that's why, a part of why, like, the kick I get out of being an artist is actually always having this opportunity to learn new things. Um, And maybe I'm not so interested in, like, taking a pearl and polishing it, you know? Um, Not now, anyways. Maybe later. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, for the last few years, I've been working almost... uh, Like exclusively in Unity and teaching myself, um, you know, more ways to script in C sharp and stuff like that, which isn't so odd because I've been doing stuff in C with Arduino for almost ten years now. Um, Yeah, so it's just it's just extending my skills in other places and learning about all the Unity specific game specific things. Yeah. When I finally got money to um, afford my own studio, which was what I've always wanted, I realized that um, the kind of work I was doing in academia uh, didn't allow me to have the same kind of practice that I had um, before. Mm-hmm. Which is fine because I still had, um, I still have a practice for sure, and I'm still making things. But. I I think that artists always just it's it's very reactive and you have to um, react to like changes that happen in your life and be smart about what you're capable of doing in this moment and whether that be because you have resources of time or money or none you just kind of have to figure it out <laughs> so um, I I'm still I'm still waiting for uh, my. Opportunity or moment to get my own studio, quote unquote, but especially this year I've been, I, I just went full digital and I started working in VR.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So now, I mean, to experience my artwork, um, it really is just a computer. All right. <laughs> Someone uh, recently uh, told me about. I think it was eye movement desensitization training and it was actually used as a, um, to combat PTSD in soldiers and it was developed I think in the 70s and I don't think even psychologists know why this works but like it was like psychotherapy in combination with telling people to move their eyes in one direction or the other and this actually really worked with PTSD and it has something to do with like what side of your brain is used or something. With a visual reflection, as a means of seeing yourself and surveying yourself, um, it's immediate, it's one-to-one, it's based in a concrete object that's right in front of you, and it's instantaneous, there's no lag. And if there's anything that pisses people off about digital interactions, is that they're not quote-unquote natural. There's like this like lag, there's this asynchronous technology that bothers them, Um, they hate it when there's like a bug (laughs) or when, you know, Skype gets bad and suddenly your face turns into a monster. Um, and I'm interested in pursuing those moments because, um, through a mirror you could be fooled into thinking it's the real thing. And that was like Narcissus's downfall was that he fell in love with his reflection. I'm not really quite so sure how I feel about like, you know, riffing on the Greeks really hard, but, um, it's, uh, it's a useful metaphor in a way. Whereas like Echo, this character chilling in the background, she was doomed. and I like this doom part. Doomed to repeat um, everything that Narcissus said. And um, I think that Echo is a lot more relevant in light of advances in AI because Echo isn't a human... Echo is, like, you know, some kind of a weird golem, and so she's kind of in between a object and a person or a nymph or something, and um, she's, like, of nature, and yet somehow has a consciousness, and I'm like, oh, uh, it's interesting, and then, like, yet she is created or, like, doomed to repeat everything that narcissist the human subject, says, and yet says it really, like, Kind of with this distortion and this lag, and the lag situates you in a physical space, and so I'm interested in technologies that have this problematic, uncanny, creepy third consciousness, or like not third consciousness, but you know, I mean, like this other consciousness going on that's somewhere between a body and. Um, and a, and a consciousness and that situate you in digital space and really resist the naturalization, the easy reflection of like, okay, I see myself, um, it's just more of me, um, you know, that kind of digital thing. Uh, and I think, I think that technology already is um, narcissist and echoist in many ways. And I think that you can't really have purity there. But maybe that um, I'm interested in just exploring things from this standpoint, using both more consciously. Then on to tasteism. <laughs> right. I think that um, capitalism will always use what is seductive. And so, I mean, I don't know if you can say that, um, you know, a hammer is any more uh, capitalist or, you know, anti-capitalist than any other object. But I think that um, those who want to maintain their power and maintain their status um, over technologies and such... They will work to kind of create technologies that keep us in a pipeline of being uh, in this, like, seductive relationship to technology. Um, And also, I think that there's um, this, like, black box determinism uh, that keeps people kind of stuck and just staring at themselves and not really staring at a whole heck of a lot else. And that's very useful to capitalism because it's a very needy circle. Um... Whereas like narcissists, uh, you know, like people don't necessarily want Echo, like she's kind of a freak. (laughs) And I guess that uh, I'm curious, like, I I mean, I keep on using these romantic metaphors, but I think uh, seduction is what keeps us buying new versions of iPhones and ignoring a lot of how that feedback loop is destroying the world around us and like what about technology could we do to interact with this other voice and um, bring us back to the world. Um, and I don't know if that's, I, I don't know if it's necessary, necessarily anti-capitalist, but it's also like a call to creativity and to engagement. I think that the sonic is more just dangerous or risky and multiple and rumour-based whereas like um i think that it's almost as though sight can be misused and your eyes can fool you and you can think that you have the right idea more easily and i think um i think that it's just that sight is so easy and so efficient um and i think that there's a danger in um there's a danger in being really, really ocular centric. And I'm not the first to say this, this is something that's uh, all over the place. And I think that ascribing criticality to sound is a little like, it's almost too easy. It kind of like deifies it. (laughs) Um, But I, I do think it can be a really interesting tool and a really playful creative tool for thinking about resistance. Um, Or engaging or creating these moments of criticality or like making room for the utterance of space and articulating space And like what happens in between these spaces could be criticality And that's just something that I've been thinking about is that I'm actually working on an ASMR project because I'm actually a huge Very like, you know, sincere ASMR fan. Like I love ASMR Um, And uh I mean, I started doing it actually without the video, and I realized that part of the medium is actually making a video. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I just find it very um, frustrating to make the video because it's so objectifying. Like, why Why do you need to look at me looking at the camera? Like, I mean, I've already done an artwork that was kind of like this in a way. I mean, it wasn't ASMR, but like, you know, the video of my face just looking at a camera and kind of just dumbly being there, um, In relationship to this, like, imagined person with the camera (laughs) And it was when I was working out this whole, like, narcissist echo thing I mean, it's, and, um You would not believe the crazy, uh, criticism that that elicited from people And it's not that I want to avoid criticism, but I'm aware of it As, like, as soon as I just, like, put my face in front of a camera And stare at it and don't do anything People are gonna be like, "Oh, girl art (laughs) Like, and, um so I'm not even really quite sure, and then I find myself thinking like, oh, well maybe I should only like show my, show things that um, you know are related to the vocal utterance, like my mouth. And I'm like, no, that's horrible, because then you're just objectifying your lips, and that's terrible. And so I think, and then I'm like, maybe I can just show my neck. And it's just, everything is just so silly, because I'm, it's all based off of what I want to avoid, rather than just what I want to do. i think a lot of people don't understand audio um a lot a lot of people um like i feel like everyone's first engagement is with things like microsoft paint or photoshop or making themselves look more hot in their pictures or something and um there's not a lot culturally and even like as kids we're encouraged to like draw pictures um Even though recorders are everywhere, there's not so many people that like were encouraged as a child to like take their cassette recorder, record their own voice or something. The sound is just so risky and image just seems like something you can like putter around on or play on or something. I think it's really the difference between craft and performance. I feel like I, Um, It's weird To think about the idea That I could just stop doing this At any point Like it's really truly strange And probably you as someone Who has been doing this for a while Feels the same way Um, But uh, I feel like my career Has been made out of survival Um and survival, not only financially, but like survival of like trying to think very critically about how to um, continue like with uh, like in, in regards to the um, in regards to like, uh, you know, your studio choices and what's your next project going to be? Because uh, there's a lot of things to get anybody down um, in general nowadays. Um, I mean depression and anxiety is just seems to be skyrocketing or maybe just the the diagnosis not clear but um, I think that uh, in terms of like making a career like I don't i don't know i don't like i don't think of it that way but it's not because maybe it's because the word career sounds so uniform like um i I think that this is the like in the last few years, I've felt very positive, and like I, I am just I feel a lot more comfortable with. I mean, I don't know if I precarity is the right word, but like I feel like I have enough material that I can improvise with and make a survival with, and um, you know, find a community and find myself in places with interesting people because. In the end, like, being around, like, wonderful friends that keep you fed creatively is also really important to me. I'm gonna be quiet because this sounds like some noise and someone that might pop in and say hi.
1: Okay. Or not.
0: Okay, they're gonna be in there for a while, I predict, unless they come out for coffee. Um but yeah that's a, that, like I would like I, I like is there something more specific you would like me to say cuz I'm not sure I gave a great answer are you really damn um but okay there's should there's nobody in the lab if you want okay we'll just move into the lab
1: yeah. Shall we?
0: And maybe make a point of like, oh, at this point, some people came and we had to move. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can insert some creative sound at that point. <laughs> that would be the audience. Our uh... looks good. So one thing I've been thinking and more conscious about is that like one of the in the past I think it was really um, kind of common or like people like you. In Canada and maybe North America, or maybe everywhere, I'm not sure, one of the most obvious ways to get into art is to go to art school, mm-hmm. and then when you get your BFA, you either get into the commercial world, or you might get successful grants, or another way is to, to get you know more cash so you can keep on going is to go to uh, art school again. And once you go to art school again, you're then, uh, you know, in the running for becoming a professor. And I feel lately like I'm very aware, and I think that this is a good thing, that um, the kind of professional work that you would do in order to be a professor is very distinct from what you would do to become an artist. And I think in the past, universities just kind of hired, like, you know, the most famous people they could get. And that was kind of what it was. But I do see now that um, art education, art pedagogy and and like art um, academia has developed enough that I guess it's developed enough that there is distinct art um, academia activities that will give a lot to your profile as a academic and you know these aren't the same And and I think I think that's super interesting but maybe super challenging to people because I think if you're trying to like just waffle in between um we all have limited amount of energy to expand and you kind of need to say like okay well you know am I going to present at a lot of uh symposia or am i going to focus on applying to artist run centers this year as you continue making work um you slowly have the joy of discovering if you haven't imposed it on yourself you have this joy of discovering the thread of What your work is and what's come up with me again and again and I couldn't for the life of me tell you how like you know something about my you know my uh, my past or whatever had anything to do with this, but um, I mean I have anecdotes, but I'm not sure that they're enough. I I'm really interested in honoring our bodies and um maybe that's that's maybe that's subject position because like you know feminism has this rich tradition of like you know paying attention to the female body not as a object to look at but like as materiality um, and I'm really interested in embodiment um and this kind of um, tension between uh, how you communicate as a subject and the actual body that you inhabit as a subject and how this is distorted through technology um my, I would say my work is um, insistently physical, uh, whether that actually be present in the work itself or just like how it engages with the body. Like for instance, this video game, this VR video game that I'm using, it uh, is controlled through um, bio sensors that like bring yourself back to your physical body, um, and. Uh, Maybe because um, of my experiences as a woman, um, I I wonder about how I can shake things up because I know that if people don't, um, if the apple cart isn't upset technologically that there's already like a, a very smooth apparatus for like keeping a Um, what I consider an unacceptable status quo of heteronormative uh, capitalist power to like just keep on rolling. (laughs) Um, I'm also very like playful, sarcastic and a bit spacey, I think. Um, I'm really, I think I've always been an abstract thinker and that's like been my blessing and my curse. And I think that for all of like the Super smart stuff in my work I also I, I try to leave room For like Delight And uh, Maybe that's Maybe that's like Almost like Despite all of my uh, Cynicism I also Like Have a lot of fun <laughs> it, it, it comes across In the music Like you can almost tell When a composer Has a sense of humor <laughs> I have a relationship to the market in as much as the market's very interested in me. Um, I, in 2013, my project with swarming emotional pianos went viral, and I was, I, I, I mean, it was, it was amazing. I was uh, interviewed for a period of about a month. I think I had like three or four interviews with major media outlets every week, and ever since, I get an awful lot of invitations. From um, tech conferences, tech people, um, TED Talks, whatever, for uh, almost exclusively unpaid um, speaking engagements to talk about the future. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, I'm great for talking about the future. I think that um, I would want to listen to me talk about the, obviously, I'm myself. I mean, I'm biased. But, um,. I so I find it interesting that like I think that the market quote unquote sees me as this like kind of interesting person to talk about technology and that there they see irrelevance relevance to what I'm doing um, and uh, however I mean I, I've, I've never I've only ever sold uh, my work to other artists so I'm not really quite sure I feel like I can speak to any kind of art market um, I've never tried it's like I know it sounds super pretentious to say it's not been my interest, but a lot of that is born out of a uh, kind of like, I only have so much energy and I don't think my energy is best spent on trying to court, um, you know, commercial galleries in how to sell my, what I see as, um, like, kind of priceless robot creations <laughs> and that are, like, complicated and, um, you know, like, I just, I, I, I haven't wanted to um, invest my energy in selling merch. I see myself as part of the people who are interested in investigating um, links between emotion and, uh, like, emotional experience and quantification of the self. There's a lot of video game companies, for example, that have been trying to integrate this. Um, This is going to be big business with, um, you know, quantification methods that are already present. I already see, I mean, like, it's not the future. This has already happened. I mean, I think that this is very, like, 2015 in some ways. Um, Like, there's, there's kind of this intense interest in turning music into a like emotion into music which is like what I've been working on for a while I think that the fact nothing has been uh like released yet is indicative of how difficult it is and so luckily as an artist you work with that difficulty and you articulate that difficulty even if somebody sends it out I'm going to be the first to say like no what they're doing is just a sham um so I think um I think that my relationship to business is more as like a technological innovator and tech speculator. You know, if I ever enter like an art market, uh, it'll have to happen pretty naturally because I'm not really willing to. Um, I'm not really willing to pursue it um, unless somebody like takes my hand and guides me there. At the moment, I'm just sustaining myself in other ways. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Gross had this really fantastic um, lecture where she talked about how like a lot of like our knowledge on Earth is developed through this patriarchal exploration of like what time and space was, and I guess maybe I felt like if I could do something to disrupt how we think we about the body and how we think about. Um, our technological interactions and if we could like be critical of that um, and if I could create that echo that this would be my kind of um, this would be my kind of um, way of slowing the technocratic like technophilic machine um, I, I think anti-oppression will come out in future works a lot more I, I recognize that if you look at my work Um, I think that it's, uh, it's not, it's not there. Like you can't point at anything and be like, oh, well that's her, you know, uh, that's her like anti-capitalist piece or that's her whatever piece. I mean, I, but I think also if you want to be, I personally feel like if you want to be an activist, go march, donate your money. Um, art is about inciting thought and, um, I think it's a lot to ask of art. I also want to say that I understand if people don't see it, and I want to be careful not to overreach because I know I have something. And I know that I am personally as a human like super vocal about anti-oppression, um, about like inherent built-in racist uh, like racism in like a lot of our technologies. Um, like even if that be at a very fundamental level of like technologies of language technologies of like how our architectures are set up like I guess I just um, I, I want to be careful about overreaching in some ways like I can I can reach as far as I want if I'm actually speaking and using my words and being clear but if I just kind of like throw anti-oppression on my artist statement I'm not sure if that's like It's not enough. Because I think that like definitely there's a lot of people nowadays that are throwing like, you know, oh, my work is anti-capitalist, my work's anti-oppressive, my work's this and that. And um, I don't know, like it's good to ask yourself, like, are you doing enough? like Are you really, is your work really about that or is your work really about form? It's totally cool if your work's about form, just like advertise it clearly what you're doing. Um, but it is it is um, gratifying to me that you say like the feminism is clear because I feel like me personally it's clear to me I just don't know if it's clear to other people. I don't know like I guess that also like if you're talking about embodiment it has to like have a form and I think at the end of the day you're also like it, it's it's kind of like what you asked about like the dichotomy between sa- between visuality and sound like it's not really a dichotomy it's always like there's never pure form pure. Um, you know concept like there's there's it's both always and to say that you're like anti one or the other is just naive like you you have a body it's everything <laughs> But the very earliest influence was Mariko Mori, who is an artist who started out as a fashion designer, and then she took photographs of herself in her, like, space-age sci-fi suits. And yet, um, she kind of created these fantastic utopia, like, these utopic worlds that were just a little sad, that were almost exclusively inhabited by her. And some of them featured, like, you know, herself in these, like, subservient... Ish, uh, positions like offering tea to men that didn't realize she was there and like um she's dressed up as like this anime babe as like outside of a an arcade and like once again like lines of men not seeing her and um and then like i think like some kind of a weird sprite in a love hotel and she said the most interesting thing is that um somebody said to her you know it seems as though you build these utopias and like you know it's hard to not see you a stand in for like you know these images of women and, um, you know, but your women always seem kind of like they're waiting for something or they're happy. Um, how can your women be happy in this like, you know, world? And her response that really triggered a lot of things for me was, well, these women are happy because they're not real women. And rather than take that as some kind of like, you know, super cynical, statement. I took that as like, whoa, sign me up. I want to be an unreal happy woman. <laughs> so, um I kind of was inspired after that to kind of ask like, you know, if what is natural is misogyny and control, how can I promote a playful unreality that isn't threatening or maybe is just threatening enough and that could open things up. And So I guess that that's kind of you know maybe what accelerationism is all about. Um, I'm not sure that I'm ready to like throw away humanity though (laughs) myself as much as we deserve to be thrown away. Um, Haraway on the other hand was the first person like I mean I I, we all start off very naive or I don't know I I had the benefit of being very naive and um, Haraway was the first person that kind of introduced to me this concept of like uh, there's always a problem you can't escape a problem you need to stay with the problem um, you're always your work is always going to be problematic in some sense or another and if you start making work that is bulletproof and not problematic then um, you probably have the wrong idea um, and uh, she also introduced me to this idea of, like, technology just not being about cyborgs. I mean, when I first started out, I was, like, like, plugging, you know, wires into an Arduino and making an LED light up. I was far from, like, you know, being able to realize the dream of, like, you know, being on the level of Stellark, making my own exoskeleton, um, and uh, so I started, it was Haraway who kind of opened me up to this idea of, like, well, what else is a technology, speaking is a technology, Singing is a technology. Singing is a fascinating technology, like song itself and like the way that we've understood how to organize sounds, like, that's amazing way of like literally like fucking with the status quo. (laughs) Um, And especially with the state of, uh, you know, who gets to be called a composer historically and even currently. Um, Yeah, but like, I also was interested in Haraway because I was very Catholic raised very Catholic, like I think that maybe I'm one of the last members of a generation that could say, like a lot, a large portion of us were raised, you know, Christian. And um, I held on to that for a long time and I think it'll always influence my work because, you know, your romantic notions of spirituality and embodiment are shaped by these like very physical but yet fantastical transformations of like, you know, transubstantiation literally is that the bread turns into blood or the body in your in your own mouth or something. And um, Haraway also was Catholic, and she has a book called *How Like a Leaf*, where she talks about her relationship between like this Catholic imaginary in her mind and her fascination with technology and embodiment. So, to me, um, like you know, all of this stuff just seems very like natural, inevitable. <laughs> this kind of thing. Um, the only thing that was unnatural was me like so viciously going after programming and electronics to realize. Like, to get power, really. I mean, we live in a world that was shaped by men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Um, And, like, I think um, throughout art history, I mean, there's been images of, like, you know, all the great conceptual artists were male. Um... Women were kind of seen as these, like, I don't know, like, muses, performance artists. Um, if there is a artist stereotype of a male, he's wearing a beret and, like, smoking something and, uh, you know, thinking man. And, like, if there's a woman, she's, like, emotionally frail, some kind of manic pixie, you know, teaches you how to feel. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is why women are such good singers is because singing is somehow really um, embodied and emotional. And um, and also this like um, unfortunate and sexist history of technological development that's actually all the fault of capitalism, <laughs> where um, you know computers are associated with masculinity and rationality. Therefore, is associated with mas- masculinity. Do you know that the first female computers were like you know developed in the World War, but then like I guess that the um, the the Wrens, especially in um, in the UK. They were basically told afterwards, like, well, we're going to sell this technology to businesses now, but we couldn't possibly have you be a manager, even though you know what's going on, because, you know, no man will actually, uh, you know, accept having a woman as a boss, so uh, mm, we'll just uh, we'll just muddle through somehow. <laughs> and, like, one of the women, Grace Hopper, was just so good that she, you know, they hired her and they kept her on. But, I mean, um, historically... Uh, power, intellectualism, rational things—I mean, all the things that would make you empowered—belong um, to men, and all the things that would make you, like both, like you know, like gaslit basically, belong to women. And you know, some people kind of try to dress that up and be like, no, because emotions beautiful and emotions great. And it's like, oh no, it's just like, <laughs> it's just like total societal manipulation. Um, And so I just kind of like to play with that. Like, I like the idea that people, when they interview me, like every once in a while, people have said these really weird things like, I'll bet you you played with, like, Transformers when you were a child. Like, no, Barbies, thanks. Um, (laughs) And like, I don't know, like, and I I get to be like this girl geek or something. And I I just don't see anything gendered about what I do anymore. I think it's unfortunate, like, I I mean, it's cool that women are coding and everything, but like, the women coding revolution came because capitalism made it like, you know, everybody needs to code now because everybody needs to make money. I like to blur the lines between intellectualism and emotion because, um, I don't see them as distinct things, which is kind of the theme of this podcast is that, you know, people like to draw this line between, I need to shut my emotions down and make a good decision. It's like, that is an emotional decision. (laughs) And um... Also, like, by transforming emotions into numbers and kind of engaging with the evolutionary um, kind of foundations of how, like, very calculated environmental your emotional state is, I mean, your emotions, something any interior decorator would tell you is that you you're more uptight in a badly designed area. And um, that that's Completely outside of you, that's your body deciding to be uptight because it's like an evolutionary ab- advantage If you are walking in the forest and you hear a tree Like, you know, like something break And then your body makes the decision for you whether you're going to do some fight or flight By like sending the correct emotional state and like affecting your uh, Like, you know, affecting your blood flow And I just think that this idea of like a purely irrational emotion just doesn't make sense But these are myths that have been developed to like kind of, um, I don't know, control society and make it stable in ways that are not just. Um, I'm super interested in the work of this academic called Sarah Ahmed, who um, writes about emotion and the politics of emotion. And uh, reading a lot of her work has um, really illuminated for me why my work in emotion is important uh, and articulating how we understand emotion, because it's, I don't mean, especially now in this kind of um, uh, political environment that's like highly about the cliques, like emotional manipulations at an all-time high. Mm, I think I'm done now. Well, that's something I find super interesting is that when it comes down to it, like the transformation of uh, physiological signals um, related to emotion um, into music is actually like a really freaking hard process because um, myself thinking critically about the musical material, it's like, well um, is it going to be like this dumb relationship between like, I guess that this person is happy so put it into happy mode Um, or like Based off of this, I can see that this person has become sad or they're crying like there are some like Physiological patterns that I could just look at and be like, oh, okay, I know what's going on There's other there's actually plenty of emotions where it's well documented that humans are special snowflakes and everybody responds differently and um, You know, it, it makes sense in a way like why would your body just like have one little happy mode that was either zero or 99% happy? I mean, it doesn't make sense When you're walking down the street, you might be like stressed or less stressed or content or maybe in a bad mood. But I mean, to think of it in terms of these almost arbitrary language um, categories that we've placed upon our emotions. I mean, if you think about it, like we've determined six major emotional states, but... um, I mean, if we were like, you know, let's say I'm not, I'm not knowledgeable about this culture at all, but like if it were a Polynesian situation, I mean, like the word that exists for sadness, could we guarantee you that it would actually mean the same thing in our bodies? Um, And I just think that if you think about how we're actually building this technology around these um, kind of arbitrary containers that are cultural, um... It, it's 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 worth interrogating and saying like, you know, why would we force our technology to analyze like, you know, okay, happy mode, sad mode, um, whatever. And also like, how is that represented? All of those languages of music are developed mostly through really manipulative like film soundtracks. And I don't know, I guess like 18th century romanticism, but like, um, you know, is it the goal of my work to be like, you know, Soundtracky, y <laughs> and um, say like, okay, this person's sad, cue the sad music, now you'll know they're really sad, um, and I mean, I think that there's this, I, I think a lot of people want that because it's a cool gimmick, but I'm interested in trying to think really critically about how music is made and develop rules based off of the physiology to just reflect the physiologies back, If it makes things that sound like this, like the music should sound according to like your conception of what happiness sounds like, that's cool. And I've even made some choices too, and like compromised just to make things like somewhat intelligible. But um, I'm super interested in developing this because I've started doing some things with Swarming Emotional Pianos. Um, I don't think I'm done yet at all because I'm gonna continue learning more about how these signals can be analyzed, how to build proper like profiles off of the people that I'm working with. Um, And, I mean, it's why I developed these um, synth boxes that aren't on my website, so you don't know about them exactly. I mean, I developed them for a children's choir, but I use them in a really dumb way. But I'm starting to build these, like, meditation works where I get groups of people to meditate. And I lead them on meditations, and their physiological signals um, will control things, um, like, you know, elements of FM synthesis. And I liken that to an emotional choir. Because like, you know, they're all going through an emotion at the same time And their little emotional voices will result in different things <laughs> um, And I think it's cool um, how that relates to like, the work of Pauline Oliveros Who um, has been using meditation as a musical tool for quite some time In a populist sense, a lot of like, the popular public was interested in like, Oh, if I cry, then there's going to be a ripping guitar solo And um, I think that's what markets want Like markets will make that for sure Um, And I think that people I think that will have a real impact On how people emotionally Understand themselves Like it's almost like this Emoticonization of our emotional states Um, And I think that this is really um, Kind of dangerous Given how controlled Our emotions already are Um, For instance I I read an article the other day About how um, we're really, like, our corporate environment has really kind of demanded of people to really tightly control their emotional states. I think that, like, anxiety and depression are on the rise, but at the same time, the corporate environment kind of demands, like, emotional purity in this sense. And, like, um, you know, the uh, corporate environments will, like, you know, have, they'll order these, like, you know, dial-a-therapists and, like, Encourage meditation breaks and mindfulness and if you get anxious, then it's like somehow you're you you just like can't take the heat or something And so I think that like emotional manipulation manipulation is of extreme and and simplification Like you know, and it's it's a way to manipulate people and also eliminate nuance Because like, you know in facebook, especially it's like donald trump said something am I wow happy sad or angry? I mean, wow! That's like there's not any nuance to these reactions. Like there's no like I'm I'm jealous. I'm scared. Um, I feel guilty because I kind of am on board. Like you know, there's there's like so many more ways you can feel. But I think if our technologies keep on revealing these ways to like give us um, you know sincerity or the window into the truth or whatever by just giving us five options. Uh, it's, it's not right. And so I'm kind of interested in developing ways for people to see their emotions not as these, natu- these natural things that technology will give a voice to, but rather these things that are highly manipulated, com- complicated and personal and, um, and conflicting. And that's, that's what I think a lot of my work in emotions is about. And questioning this idea of like sincerity and naturalism um because like I, I think that the attention in emotional swarming emotional pianos is like they're actors that are literally activating their emotions there's nothing sincere about that not to mention that biofeed feedback can be a bitch <laughs> so. i don't know i mean like how many times have you like been sad and then like decided you're gonna go listen to some sad music to like why you're like mm-hmm. amping it up mm-hmm. and they're like if your sadness after while you're lis- while you're sad and listening to your sad music is like then super sad, like is that a natural state? In. Emotion state is flickering okay. Emotion state is flickering okay. yeah, it's totally about emotional sincerity. It's um i was i I made the work. I was interested in um. I was interested in uh, working with the the first-person shooter format because it's a game I've never been able to play. I am very anxious with things flying by my head, so I just can't handle war games. I've also never been able to handle the rhetoric of war games. The war games have been, like, it's usually a very macho, self-righteous, like, you know, gritty, uh, I don't like like killing people, but I have to kill people uh, kind of a thing. And mixed in with this, um, you know, this online, like now that a lot of things are gone online, uh, people will like insult you with all of these um, insults that I find just kind of like bizarre. Um, like you know, everyone's a faggot, everyone's a pussy, everyone's, <laughs> and I, I just, I'm not interested in this kind of thing. I can see the thrill, I can see the guilty pleasure, it's just not me. I guess I was just interested in engaging with that and, and saying, well, okay, what's this echoist take I can make with that? And so I immediately thought, well, you know, how can I provide this thing that that talks about war uh, or war games and kind of deflates that a bit? And I thought, I, I came up with this idea to um, make, to center the main character in this game as um holographic pop star Yawane Haku. I mean you might be aware of Hatsune Miku who's the who's the big one but Yawane Haku is this like weird fan derivative of Miku who like I guess that Yawane Haku is this like vocaloid who is invented for like all of the the bad failed versions of uh bad pop songs or something and I was interested in this like character is like this weird derivative cast off, um, of the successful hologram pop star. And I thought, oh, well maybe she goes on to have a career in the army. So she, um, she gets developed by the army as this like vocaloid for the troops and, um, her job, she's, I don't, I don't know, I guess immortal. She, she rolls around on a Roomba, um, and gets projected from a Roomba, um, which is kind of an inner, like an inside joke with my past work, but also the Roomba Company is like a military, um, like it is a military developed project. The Roomba. Um, if you Google it, like their their like military models are really like crazy. <laughs> um, and so she rolls around on a Roomba, and her job is just to like inspire and distract the troops because they might get PTSD if they're fighting. Um, PTSD is on the rise with um, military fighters, um, especially through um drone operations and stuff like that and as the technology becomes more and more superior uh you know less people are dying and yet are left with these haunting images of what they had to see what they had to do and like you know the the sacrifices like i don't want to belittle um people that do something that i myself don't do but um i think that these war games for example don't necessarily talk about ptsd at all and so i thought well what if i put um trauma like the trauma of being a fighter front and center in this game so your job as a pop star is to run around and like distract them and keep the morale up um as they fight uh and so you uh, are attached to you are supposed to be attached as a civilian through this biosensor link and you are giving your emotions literally to this um, to this holographic pop star, which then, like, based off of your emotional input, it somehow like makes her um, performance more realistic. And like, I don't know, the troops like it more. They like the sincerity of knowing that a real person's behind it. Um, and uh, so you are running around on this battlefield. Inspiring these troops and trying to prevent them from um, getting too depressed to continue fighting and you're always interacting with troops They're saying things to you Um, And so you kind of have to like always be modifying your emotional state to like be amped up at the appropriate time and um, I think that there's something very like funny about that. That's this kind of like emotional state as labor (laughs) um And the soldiers are often asking, like, are you being honest with me? Your sincerity is inspiring me. And it's like, are you being sincere? But you also have to be sincere because if you're not sincere, the biosensor won't work. (laughs) So um, I I think that it's more a game about emotional sincerity and manipulation and, like, kind of turning your sincerity or your excitement into some kind of a weapon or technologizing that process than it is actually about, like, you know, PTSD, Mm -hmm. which is something I don't like. I mean, I I couldn't possibly comment on really. Um, In the guise of this like first-person shooter war game, (laughs) right? This is it's in VR, but it's a third-person VR. Which um, I've been listening to a lot of VR podcasts, um, and it's interesting. I listened to this one podcast. I can't remember the name of the fellow. He he said that he thinks that first-person uh first-person VR experience might be a bit of a naive early VR trope, and that third-person VR is going to be developed quite heavily um, later on. Uh, and so, I was interested in taking his kind of design tips and applying it towards this experience. So, a lot of people, when they're in VR, they kind of—I think that they want to have this experience of like really being there. But I think that my um, my VR video game is more going to be just like you know a really immersive video game in 3d <laughs> right. record That's the record. right yeah. <sighs> should I go there um I personally it's funny this go, it kind of goes into your subjective comment um, I resent saying this, but I say it anyways because it's important <laughs> uh, I am a survivor of sexual violence And this marks a lot of my experience about what I want to make with my work and it's, um, I find that sexual violence has been on the tongues of many people Especially with the Gian Gomeshi trial that happened a few years ago um, uh, That was the first time that I felt like emotionally triggered by what was in the news Um, I almost never want to talk about or self-identify this status because I personally hate the way it makes people think about me, look at me. People who love me are like almost like, oh, what happened? They want to know the details. I personally don't want to share the details. I don't want to talk about it. It's like, it's something shitty that happened and I don't want to relive it. Uh, however, well, the only reason I bring it up is because I think that people aren't aware of how prevalent it is and how normal it is. And people say very careless things without realizing that there's a really excellent statistical chance that the person you're talking to is going to be like heavily affected by your rape joke. And... Um, Or even like just say things like about like, well, I think she's faking it, blah, blah, blah. And it's like the person that you're talking to, there's a really great chance that they something bad or like really messed up happened to them. And they never had the confidence to go to the police. And um, I came up with this idea just thinking about this. And I was like, well, what's the opposite of a graveyard? Like we're all alive. We're all here. And I don't want, like, I want to mark our presence. And I want people to just kind of think about these people that are just walking amongst you. But I'm not very interested in hearing stories. I don't want to, like, I don't think it's important to hear the stories. I don't think this discussion of, like, what counts as sexual violence is, like, very interesting to me. Um, I just was thinking the opposite of a graveyard is, like, just this place to mark, we're still here, we're still around. And um, I wanted to mark this through recordings of laughter Hmm. to be like, I don't want you to think of me as this like, you know, crushed victim or something. Like, fuck it, I'm laughing. Hmm. And so, um, you know, if I were to do this project, like, you know, my laughter, I could like think just a little bit right now. (laughs) There we go. That's a laugh. I'm laughing, I'm still laughing. Uh, I want to collect as many um, submissions of survivors of sexual violence as possible laughing yeah yeah if people can send me a we transfer or like just make like a really cheap dirty I don't care about the audio like you know the, the, the audio quality whatever like do it with your iPhone of you laughing um, I will also like I mean I want to create like a basically a monument like personally, I want to create like this compilation of laughter of like, you know, of people laughing of like, I, I love the idea of like almost like a public fountain of laughter, like this reminder that like these people are here, they're still laughing. And I just thought it would be great to have like, you know, this idea, like, you know, a fountain, the water just keeps on going and like the laughter doesn't stop. <laughs> Like, people love hearing the stories of, like, th- bad shit that's happened to people and I don't think it's necessarily, like, for the best of reasons. Like, you know, uh, to have, like, a, like hordes of people with their hands on their cheeks being like, oh, humanity's so cruel. I mean, like, there's such a precedent of, like, having these horrible stories be entertainment that I'm just all like, yeah, you know what, fuck, what? fuck you, it's happened, I don't need to tell you why. <laughs> I want to be able to laugh with, like, a lot of people that are also kind of saying, fuck you, I'm still here. <laughs>
1: Precariat Content is produced by me, Ben McCarthy. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about artists I should interview for the podcast, please contact me at not sorry at paleeyesmusic.com. N-O-T-S-A-W-R-Y at pale I may be slow in getting back to you, but I will get back. You can follow me on Instagram at paleeyesmusic. There you'll find updates about the ephemera of my airswall life and career. Artwork for Precariot Content was produced by Allison Escobar. Web design is by Jonathan Carroll and can be found at precariotcontent.com. There you can find pictures of the artists, links to their work, and to details referenced in the podcast. Thanks to Erin for her openness and crystalline vision. And to you for choosing to spend your time with the work. If you like what you've heard here, you probably have a sense of what to do about it. Subscribe, say nice things to the Apple overlords, post links to your favorite interviews, or just tell somebody. The next episode profiles Dance Collective flocked. They have had the distinct honor of being ripped off without credit by Kanye West and they are the creators of soundwork and choreography that is genuinely and perennially visceral and raw. Final word on Little Music. On October 14th, I released a collection of experimental tracks that I've been at work on for the last several years. They are a collection of songs derived from environmental noise, social media, and human utterance that borrow from the composition and sound design I've undertaken for VR installation, theater, and this podcast record spans blown out DJ ensembles, sound sound, ambient music, and texturally dense NPC-derived rhythms. At this point, you can find the record on Bandcamp and Apple Music, and it will soon be available on Spotify and Tidal. I'll leave you here with part of a track titled Lisa Drunk with One Eye Closed for Focus.